This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey everybody and welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm John Donvan and I have a question for you to ponder. Have you had this experience? There is a comedian that you just idolize or a singer or an actor or a painter or a writer or a composer. Somebody whose work you consider to be just totally amazing, full of insight and beauty and maybe even genius. And then you find out this person that you idolize is a total jerk or worse, you know, believes in some really bad ideas or has said some really hurtful things or done some really harmful things. Examples, Richard Wagner, Bill Cosby, R. Kelly, Picasso. But there are so many more to list because every artist has a private life, of course, and then stuff comes out. And when it does, how does that affect your connection to their work as a fan? Do you downgrade your estimation of it because your opinion of the artist has fallen? Or do we, as a culture, still find a way to admire and honor the work apart from the person who made it? You know, if you Google the phrase, separate the art from the artist, you will see that exact language coming up again and again as a headline on op-ed pieces and in the titles of scholarly papers, because it is a relevant question, especially in recent years as we have a culture have engaged in reckonings and reevaluations and cancellations. So to help shed some light on the matter, we decided to take that phrase and debate it as a question. So let's have it. Agree to disagree. Should we separate the art from the artist? We have two guests who will take opposite sides, one answering yes and the other answering no. Aruna D'Souza is a writer specializing in art and politics with a particular focus on feminism. She has studied the especially intriguing topic of how museums impact the way all of us view and understand the world. And Randy Cohen, also a writer and a humorist. He wrote for The Letterman Show. But his biggest imprint on the culture came almost certainly from the decade he devoted to writing the ethicist column for The New York Times. Aruna and Randy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Really happy to be here. And to get started, we we just want to let listeners know which side of the question you come down on. On this question, should we separate the art from the artist? Are you a yes or a no? Aruna, I will ask you first. On that question, are you a yes or a no? I am a no. Um, and uh, I know that's often hard for people to hear, but, you know, hopefully I'll make a case for it today. Okay, thanks very much, Irina. Well, so that tells you where you're going to come down on this, Randy, but we still want to do it as a matter of formality. Should we separate the art from the artist? Yes or no? Yes. Um, I don't know if you've met a lot of artists. There, An amazing number of them are just terrible people. And if we <laughs> didn't make that separation, you wouldn't get to enjoy much art at all. All right. So let's get into your arguments and why you're taking this side of the issue. Now, Randy, you spoke just now, so why don't you keep going? Tell us why you are a yes on the question of separating the art from the artist. Thank you, John. And thank you, Arun, for being here. Um, uh, an awful lot of wonderful art has been made by an awful lot of terrible people. That Roman Polanski was, by all accounts, a bad guy, but Chinatown is a terrific movie. To enjoy the art is not to endorse the artist. To be moved by a Picasso is not to defend misogyny. If I had to forswear, say, every 19th century English novel written by a casual anti-Semite, I wouldn't get to read much of anything. And for African-American readers, it's even worse. Sometimes we hold our nose and enjoy the best of what remains. Um, more broadly, if I showed you a lovely jacket or a delicious bowl of pasta, would it matter that the fashion designer was Coco Chanel, a big Nazi collaborator during the Second World War, or that the pasta maker, Guido Barilla, was a big homophobe? As with pasta, so with art. <laughs> I, don't, I don't reject Shakespeare in Love because its producer, Harvey Weinstein, did horrible, horrible things. I don't cast out Jeeves and Worcester because P.G. Woodhouse did radio broadcasts for the Nazis. I, my argument is this, that few of us are great artists and few of us are great people, saintly people. Expecting someone to do both 
is asking an awful lot. Um, I'd add one clarification. Um, A knowledge of the artist's misdeeds does affect the way I see the work. Um, New Revelations, as John said, made many people turn away from Woody Allen or Michael Jackson or Louis C.K. But our repulsion fades with time. The further in the past the misdeeds of the artist, the easier they are to separate from the work. Very few people recall Christopher Marlowe's career as a spy. The ideal thing is for the nefarious artist to be dead. And the deader, the better. Uh, The crimes of the distant (laughs) past are more tolerable than those of five minutes ago. And today, Wagner is performed even in Israel. So the separation isn't total. The deeds of the artist affect the context of the art, but don't require us to reject the art. Thanks very much, Randy. And now, Aruna, it's your turn. You are the no on this question. And tell us why. Well, you know, I I think that one of the things that... um we can start with is to say that even when people think they're separating the artist from the art, they're actually not. Um, They're compartmentalizing, and compartmentalizing sometimes works and sometimes doesn't, and often causes us harm. So I'm actually not interested in passing moral judgments on the artist. Yes, artists can be terrible people. I think that it's Um, I think that it's telling that of all the artists mentioned, I think there was one woman mentioned, and and I think that that's significant, and I'll talk about that later, Um, that, that, you know, I think of art not in terms of a bowl of pasta or um, a a, um, designer jacket, but in terms of relationships. And so, yes, we all know that there are, we've had, terrible people in our lives, right? We may have, uh, we may love someone who's abusive, right, to us, uh, to us ourselves. And we may compartmentalize by saying, this person has many great qualities, and so I will overlook the way that they're treating me. And we all know that that's an unhealthy thing to do. And so for me, the reason to reject the art um, of terrible people. And I'm, you know, when I think of terrible people, I'm not talking about run of the mill, narcissistic, mean, you know, ugly behavior. I'm, you know, we're talking about Nazis, right? And, um, people who rape people, (laughs) right? Like these are, these are pretty big moral flaws. Um, but I'm actually not worried about passing moral judgment on the artists. I'm, thinking about the harm it does to us in the present by um, endorsing and reifying and continuing to consider great uh, the art produced by people whose um, moral failings actually produced what we consider the greatness of their art. So let let me uh, start with uh, going back directly to you, Aruna, the point Mm -hmm. that you just made about the way you phrased it is you have real hesitation about continuing to consider great some of the work done by people who have, uh, as you say, you're not, you're not judging them just for being sort of run-of-the-mill jerks, yeah. but people who have committed significant uh, harm in transactions. Uh, sometimes because of their influence, because of the size of the megaphone they have, their jerkness may actually have a deeper impact. And some of them just have done truly, truly bad things. But what I find interesting in what you're saying is that you feel that that actually calls for a consideration of the merit of the work itself when you say, should we consider continue to consider the work great? Well, you know, I think that, you know, what we always have to think about is the way that greatness itself isn't, it's not a given, right? It's socially constructed. We decide the criteria for greatness, and we may think that, you know, oh, great art is just based on um, aesthetic value or, uh, you know, the emotions that it produces in us or whatever. But it's actually a very complicated—it's been produced in Western culture over a long period of time. And during, you know, often um, certain kinds of behaviors, especially certain kinds of toxic masculine behaviors are actually a feature and not a flaw in that definition. So if I can give one example, like, okay, let's go to Picasso, right? It's it's easy to look at, say, 
Um, Picasso's guitar, a sculpture that is in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art, a groundbreaking work of his that's made of cardboard and wire and um, that borrows um, the sort of spatial um, innovations of African masks and, and absolutely changed the course of art history, really. And it's easy to look at that and say, okay, that's a great work of art and I can separate it from the fact that Picasso is um, was kind of a jerk um, to women, um, including you know uh, one of his wives who he got together with when she was in her early teens, for example. Yeah, I mean, to, just to to put it home to people who aren't aware of it, he was extraordinarily abusive to women. It wasn't just being a jerk. Yeah, it, it, he he was he was abusive, and but but how then do you compartmentalize his? long-ranging, you know, throughout his career, his images of women, and and especially of the women that he was in relationships with, his wife, the ballerina Olga, um, who he depicted with a face made of a vagina dentata, or his, uh, the, the Marie Therese, who he um, began a relationship when she was something like 14 years old, uh, and he depicts as you know, a, a beach ball, a sexual plaything. You know, we. You know, when we look at that, um, we may think that we're separating out, but in fact, the the awfulness of his attitudes towards women are baked into what we're seeing. Right there, that, that it's impossible to to separate out the fact that we're looking at um, these really hateful um, kinds of attitudes. You know, when we look at a Titian that depicts a rape, um, you know, from classical mythology, right? I mean, Titian, I don't know what he was like in terms of his relationships. He was taking these subjects from classical mythology. But when we look at a painting that depicts a rape, what does it mean that we're teaching ourselves, we're teaching students, we're teaching young people to say, it's okay to, to tell you that this painting of a rape is a great painting, right? So I'm well, not, I don't care I, what I, Titian's, I don't care whether Picasso was, you know, he, he was of his time. We can say all those things. But I think, you know, when we're asked to look at this and find greatness in it, that's already, we're, we're, we're pretending there's a way to separate out, to separate the artist from the art. But actually, the artist is baked into the work. More from Intelligence Squared U.S. when we return. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's get back to our debate. So, Randy, wow, that, that's, that's quite an indictment of, <laughs> <laughs> uh, of the argument you're making. Uh, what's, what's your response to it? Um, that that um, sometimes the—well, let me put it as a question— are the hateful ideas in the work itself? And sometimes absolutely yes. Arun and I agree about this. And when they are, the work should be repudiated. But you needn't even make a reference to, to the work, the worker who created it. And, and my example is in the case of Wagner, you know, those dwarves in the ring, they were meant by Wagner to be Jews. And they were interpreted by his listeners as Jews. Um, and, and so you can reject the work because Wagner's anti-Semitism is in the work, not just because he's an anti-Semitic guy. But I don't think that's true always. Um, and and I, I give you the case of Michael Jackson. I think if we didn't know about his dubious personal life, you would not find it in the songs. Um, and the same thing for James Brown. For people my age is uh, um, and, and my musical taste is a similar example. James Brown did some, some really horrible things. Um, he went to prison for domestic violence and gun charges. But James Brown recorded Cold Sweat. And I think that makes him a living national treasure. There's no way you would listen to Cold Sweat and hear James Brown's 
horrible personal behavior in that work. So sometimes it's in the work and then repudiate it, Mm -hmm. but sometimes it's not. And I would say often it's not, especially for non-representational work. Um, And and even when it is in the work, uh, meanings change. Um, The dwarves that were obviously Jews to the German general staff in, say, 1939, well, that's not so obvious to uh, opera goers today. And, And the creator's intent is no guarantee of anything. You know, part of what always puzzles me when we sort of visit this question, and trust me, it's a it's a question and debate that as a person in the art world who has both written about uh, historical art, 19th century art, as well as um, really grappled with the question when it comes to contemporary art, uh, I one of the things I always wonder is why do we think that we the only options are accepting the art despite the artist, or not having any art to look at. And so this is one of the other things that always um, that always puzzles me, because I, I don't think that if one says, okay, Picasso, let's take Picasso, let's, you know, Picasso was a terrible person, let's take his art off MoMA's walls. It isn't like MoMA wouldn't have a million other things to put on those walls because there are so many artists beyond Picasso making great work. And so one of the things that I think this question is always framed with is a really false sense of kind of the scarcity of greatness, right? That greatness only happens that if we get rid of Picasso, we get rid of uh, Wagner, we get rid of whoever, that there will be nothing left. And, you know, I guess that what I have found, especially as I do more and more work on both historical figures who have been overlooked and also contemporary artists who, because they don't fit a certain mold, aren't um, on the radar for identifying greatness, who were making actually great work. Um, and, and, and perhaps if we spent less time looking at the Picassos and grappling over the question of how do we separate the artist from the art, we'd find, um, in fact, a ton of other people who are just as uh, worth looking at, um, just as worth finding um, solace in, finding beauty in, finding uh, intellectual challenge in. That would be an argument just to let's recycle from time to time and let's update from time to time, not because of the moral character of the artist, but uh, your your argument would just might be times change and fashions change. Well, I don't think that it's just times change and fashions change. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, there's always historical revision that's going on, whether mm-hmm. or not we're revising based on um, the moral character of the artist or the way that the artist's work um, upholds values that we no longer embrace in our culture. Uh, but it's also, but it, but you know, I guess that what what I'm coming at is. The, the question of why we ask this question all the time, um, why this is a question to begin with. And I think it's a question because we are often unwilling um, to say, to let go of the values that make Picasso great in our minds, that, that whether or not we um, admit it, we actually you know that that there is something that still draws us to the you know macho man who does whatever he wants and smokes and drinks and slaps around his girlfriend um because that is what ultimately deeply ingrained in western culture that's what our idea of person who creates great art is. And so that's why, I mean, I I still want to go back to the question of why almost all of our examples and, and you know, many great examples that both of you have, have introduced into the debate, why they're all men and why most of them, not all of them, are um, white European men. Uh, you know, I think that that is not an insignificant issue. Um, you know, and what does it say when we're saying that you can be 
you can be a rapist. You can be, uh, in some cases, a murderer. You can be a, a domestic abuser. You can do all those things. And don't worry, we'll still consider you great. I worry about what that message is. I think it's in some ways no different than the message that we often get in our in in other parts of our lives where we know that if you're powerful or if you're rich, you can get away with a lot. I, I just want to break in because you've said a lot, and I want to yes, give Randy sorry, a chance. I, no, I tend to do that. That's okay. I just want to give Randy a chance to respond to some of it. And so, Randy, what if if I could boil down what I think Arun is saying in response to the, the question that we're debating and your position on it, is that your ability, as you put it, to hold your nose, she's using the term compartmentalize and set aside the awfulness of a particular artist, may have to do with a certain romanticization by the culture of the bad boyness of a lot of artists, and that that's that that makes it easier for a nose holder or a compartmentalizer to go ahead and like say the film Chinatown, even though Roman Polanski was committed or convicted no, of rape. I, I didn't think that a great deal of nose holding was required to, to enjoy Chinatown, and that and unless I mean you were at, at pains to to. Fill in some background for people who might not know what charges were leveled against Michael Jackson. You would have to work really hard to avoid knowing that. I, th- I think you wouldn't have to work quite as hard to avoid knowing anything about Roman Polanski's private life. And, and, and I defy Arun to show how that resonates through that movie. Um, I think that's a great movie. Uh, and I think Polanski is, by all accounts, a horrible guy. So when there is work... Oh, and by the way, I would... I, 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 endorse your view that most of the crimes we're referring to are, are crimes of men. I am no defender of, of my gender. Um, <laughs> uh, that's, that seems inarguable. I think Arun is completely right about that. Um, uh, not exclusively. Um, uh, uh, George Eliot uh, had the kind of casual anti-Semitism of her era and social class. Um, Agatha Christie's pre-war novels are, are they're pretty gruesome to read now. Yes, they are. But, but, um, if, but I, I would if these ideas, if you can show me how these ideas are present in the work, then we can repudiate those ideas without making any particular reference to the artist. There it is in the work. Um, if an anti-Semite makes me a beautiful dining room table, um, <laughs> I can, I, we can criticize the table, but I think it will be harder to show um, how his um, deplorable conduct away from his his lave um, affected the work itself. Randy, there's 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 no world in which you would say, I know that that guy who made the dining room table, who makes dining room tables, is an anti-Semitic jerk. I'm not going to give him my business because of that. Because of that, uh, I, I can choose to look elsewhere for my tables, as as Arun suggests. We look elsewhere for our art, but I'm not so sure I want MoMA making that decision for me, not, not or any cultural institution that's that's taking money from the Koch brothers. And and it, and it would not make you think that it's a bad table. You would, you would still say, too bad, that's such a great table made by such a bad guy. The further in the past, the, you know, the wicked carpenter um, existed, the easier it is for me to tolerate their misdeeds. Why is that? Why is that? I want to explore that a little bit. Um, because of the, 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 the blessings of time. That, that, that the immediacy of crimes committed close to us, both in time and space, is, is very potent, but um, we don't really check for the conduct or know much about the, 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 an art goer like me um, doesn't know much about the lives of many Renaissance artists. I actually take the, the quite opposite point of view. I, I think, you know, individually, uh, we make decisions all the time. Like, we may have, uh, you know, about what to uh, what to allow in our lives and not. So, you know, we all have that one uncle, or we all have that one friend, or we all have that one problematic fave who is terrible and and we are individually willing to to compromise, right? We are individually willing to say, okay, but I love this. I love this person. I love this performer. I love this movie. I love this. And, and you know, we're willing to make that decision on our own account. But when it comes to our institutions, including our museums, I actually think that there is more of, a, of an issue when they are saying we're going to separate 
uh, our view of the artist from the art. I actually think it's more of a problem because then you're you're not just making a decision for yourself and reconciling it for yourself. You're actually promoting the idea of this um, of uh, promoting this idea that as long as you are making something quote unquote great we are willing to overlook what you've done no matter how egregious right and so i actually think the 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 onus is even greater on public institutions who do not have unlimited resources who do not have unlimited time and who do not have unlimited space to make their choices carefully and you know this is where i go back to the idea that there's not a finite amount of greatness in the world. You know, we would all survive if we didn't see another Picasso retrospective for 30 years, right? We That doesn't mean that we forget that he was a historically significant artist who influenced a lot of other artists. That We don't have to forget that. We don't have to put that aside. But the world would still go on. Artists would still... Uh, find inspiration. Um, individuals would still find, you know, be able to see uh, challenging and interesting and and really, you know, genuinely great work. Well, that, that's even a, that, if we I, put I, Picasso I, in a closet for a while. So that's what I wanted to bring back to Randy because that was the point you were coming to: is let's put Picasso in a closet for a while, maybe. And Randy, what would you think of? a world where the judgments made about the artists would result in maybe putting them in a closet for a while. Would, how far back in time would you extend this and, and how rigorous would your uh, study of the artist's behavior be? Would you be hiring private detectives? Um, would you be bringing oh, historians? Oh, come do, on. Do, 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 <laughs> well, does this, would you apply this to, to um, murderous artists of the Renaissance? Um, uh, that I, I, again, I think that you're asking uh, by not making that separation, um, you're and asking MoMA to to make that distinction. Um, I, I think the the walls are going to be uh, pretty bare. Randy, is your argument that doing so would be impractical, or that doing so would be? bad for the culture, whether if, if there were a way to address this? I'm doing so would be bad for the culture, even if there were a way to address this. That I, I see the role of, of, the, um, of the museum and the gallery as more akin to the role of the library, that they judge, oh, these are, these are interesting books that people um, should have access to, and, and so it should be with art, and so it should be with orchestras. Um, but there's more room in a library for books than there's room in a gallery for... But then you're making a practical argument, um, I'm, I'm trying to say that I think that what Aruna's point is, is that uh, resources are scarce, space is scarce, choices have to be made, more so than in a library, and that therefore uh, th- th- this is a legitimate these are legitimate grounds for making a choice about whether an artist gets space on the wall or not in a particular museum at a particular time. Um, I, and there's something to Aaron's point. I think that um, for me, I, I, you know, the... the um, uh, my attention is up for grabs, and, and and I can look at lots of art. But for a gallery owner, it's a more challenging problem that, that there's only a finite number of wall space and a finite number of shows. Um, but I, I I think Arun was a little too um, facile in, in, in considering the the ability of these cultural institutions to make what is ultimately a kind of moral distinction. But that, they're that always you making a moral distinction. Too easily, I think um, the source of their funding. Um, and that that's, oh, all money is bad. That seems a, a little too facile to, to me. Well, actually, I, I want to I push back on this idea that somehow the museum is only making a choice when it decides not to put something up, as opposed to making a choice when it decides to put something up. So Picasso didn't just magically appear on the walls of MoMA, right? It's not that MoMA built the museum and somehow the great art just magnetically found its way to the space, right? Um, You know, the curators of MoMA uh, from its beginning were enamored of Picasso, and so they built a collection around this guy, right? And so they are constantly making a choice to foreground that work. And by foregrounding certain work, they're leaving other work in the background, right? And and you know, this is this is just a it's the same way that a that a concert hall might program 
their concerts, it's not like it's just a free-for-all and, you know, the the cream rises to the top. They're actively making a choice to, to platform some work and not platform other work. And so, you know, this, you know, the the idea that that somehow we're, we're giving MoMA too much power by allowing them to choose is not recognizing that they have all the power to choose. And part of the reason that we now think of Picasso as a great artist is precisely because of the choices that MoMA has been making, um, th- you know, for almost 100 years, right? And so part of this is is just the idea that we're naturalizing the idea of greatness, that greatness is just something that we know exists, as opposed to the, the idea that it's something that we've been told all of this time. And I think that, you know, you, sort of, Randy, at the beginning, you said, you know, if we ask people to reject certain work, what would that put black readers in the position, right? There would be, there would be very little left that they would be able to read. And I would say, well, first of all, black readers can decide what they're going to read for themselves. And that, as I said, I think personal choices are personal choices. But I also think, what does it mean when we are telling, say, you know, black students or or black readers, that such and such a work is a great piece of literature, despite the fact that it completely dehumanizes you, right? I mean, despite the fact that um, the person who wrote it was actively, um, you know, in support of uh, treating you as less than human, right? That we are constantly... We get to define what's great or not, and we are constantly, and our institutions are constantly defining that. And so when we come to this question about whether we should separate the art from the artist, whether we should compartmentalize uh, their biography from what they produced, you know, what this is all predicated on is what is our idea of greatness? And who is making those decisions? And I would think that every time we say... It's okay to um, celebrate the work of such and such an artist or such and such a musician or such and such a comedian. Um, We are actually, that that is a choice and a moral judgment that we are making. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. More of our conversation when we return. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Let's get back to our debate. Aruna, um, you've mentioned a few times that the historical perpetrators have tended to be white men. But I I want to point out, even in this conversation, we've talked about R. Kelly and Mm -hmm. Bill Cosby and James Brown and Mm -hmm. Michael Jackson. Yes. How do you – and and there would be more, of course. How how do you process those names into into the point that you're making? Well, I mean, you know, I think that, you know, the crimes against women and the crimes against children in the case of Michael Jackson that happened were crimes. I don't I don't know, you know, yes, does it uh, break my heart, genuinely breaks my heart to have to, you know, grapple with um, Michael Jackson, who, you know, I was, I don't know how old I was when... Um, when Beat It came out, but like that music defined my preteen and teen age years, um, you know, and uh, really formed the culture around me. Does it break my heart to have to to have to grapple with with what I know of him? Yes. Does it break my heart also to see what he endured um, in terms of abuse and things like that as he was a child? Yes. Um, you know, would, I'm not would, you want to put, that, would you want to put his music in a closet as well for 30 years? Well, I have personally, I have put my his work in a closet for 30 mm-hmm. years. I, I also know that there are um, there are people who have really struggled with it, um, struggled with the decision and made sometimes similar t- decisions to me and sometimes not similar decisions to me. But um, but 
you know, yeah, life is messy and complicated. And sometimes we do things that we don't really want to do, but we know are right to do. And and that, you know, it's for me, it's less, you know, I have no problem putting, you know, t- saying I never want to see anything from Bill Cosby again. I never want to hear anything from R. Kelly again. Um, you know, I, I, I have no problem with that. Um, you know, that decision, because I don't care about it. I have no problem never watching a... Woody Allen movie because I don't care for his I didn't care for his movies to begin with they all seemed really creepy to me but then there are points at which yeah it's really hard for me um and I would say whether and, or not and, but what what makes it hard and I'm asking that because it sounds as though you are willing to do some compartmentalization of the Randy Cohen kind in given situations or, or am I wrong about that part of what I think um it produces a lot of anxiety around these questions and around the question of whether we should cancel uh, certain kinds of art or artists have so little to do with even the music or the literature. And they have to do with who we were at the time that we encountered it. So so for me, I, it's impossible for me to separate um, uh, Michael Jackson from you know, my teenage years and dancing around with my friends to the album and trying to reproduce the dance steps or whatever it was, right? I mean, and so part of it is that I don't want this thing that was part of, you know, my formation, right? I don't want this to to now be, you know, in compromised in some way or tarnished in some way as it inevitably becomes when you um, realize, you know, what was happening uh, in the lives of the children that were abused, right? Like, you know, but at the same time, I think I should be mature enough to say, okay, but this isn't about me, right? This yeah. is about, in a sense, those kids. All right. Let me, let, me, let me take it back to Randy to see, Randy, how you respond to some of what you're hearing Arona um, say about all of this. I, I'd like to go back a bit to, to MoMA and, and say that I... I let's, let's tell people who don't know that it's the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Transcending Museum, okay. I would say I look to MoMA to have a certain authority and a certain expertise in judging the artworks themselves. Um, I have no confidence in MoMA's ability to make moral judgments about the artists. So if they're making a judgment, um, they necessarily must make judgments about what to put on their walls. Um, And that's a legitimate distinction if it refers to the art. Um, It is not if they become a a morality police. If you can show uh, that uh, ideas that you reject are present in the art, well, that is the role of both uh, the the gatekeepers at art galleries and cultural institutions and of critics. There's a community of critics who should attack these ideas, reject these ideas, repudiate these ideas. And if that drives the work off the gallery walls, that's great. That's that's what critics are supposed to do. They should not be peering in the windows of, of, of even the most vile artists and saying you we we uh, reject you because of your of your conduct away from your studio. That that that's inappropriate. It seems to me. Um, I, I, I'd throw in one other thing about the individual decision um, to. Well, I I don't want to listen to um, uh, watch a Woody Allen movie or listen to uh, uh, a Michael Jackson song. Um, and, and of course, everyone has the opportunity to do that. But I'd say if you do that privately, you're kind of missing a, a, a chance to engage in, a, in an important public conversation. Um, and so when there's a kind in, of... In what way? In what way? Well, if there's an organized boycott, say, of someone's work um, because of their action, right? Um, if, if we're saying uh, Roman Polanski did terrible things and we're organizing a boycott, um, um I would honor that boycott and I would avoid going to those movies because now we're talking about political action. Um, in the same way, I, I, I would not cross a picket line and, and, unless I, until I learn more about it. But my default position in a labor dispute is to honor a picket line. My default position in this kind of boycott is to honor the boycott. And, and even if that means depriving myself of the work. And so I'm, I'm in favor of that kind of attack um, of, of organizing with your neighbors um, to make important cultural points. Um, But what you do as an individual, while while it's fine, it doesn't have much cultural significance. Randy, um, I want to 
to, to set aside the time question and talk about some contemporary cases and see how you feel about them. So I, I think stand-up comedy is a really, really interesting area because, number one, the artists are they, – they, they embody the work. They stand there. They tell you a story. Very often there's an indication that it's autobiographical, so it's very personal. So the separation between the work and the, and the individual is there, – there seems to be much less daylight between them. And I want to, you know, go for an example. I don't know if you were ever a fan of Louis C.K., but f- watching Louis C.K. now, if you had the opportunity, knowing what you know, does he does the work become less funny, less engaging because of what you know about his behavior? Perhaps, perhaps only at the level of a distraction, but also maybe at a more substantial way. Uh, no, I think this gets back to the Wagner example, that, that comedy is really interesting because, as you say, what many comedians portray is a kind of heightened or stylized version of themselves, that the work is presented as a kind of um, uh, semi-autobiographical act, right? Um, and that, that was even true for Mile Boss, for Dave Letterman, when, when he was condemned for various improprieties. That was an extension of the persona he presented. That was his act. And so those ideas, that um, I found distasteful were present in the work itself. You didn't have to go around to Louis C.K.'s house. The, what Louis C.K., the, every joke is an assertion about the world. And the assertions um, Louis C.K. or Bill Cosby or Woody Allen were making were often quite creepy. Um, and so you, you needn't look further than the work itself to reject it. Well, I, you know, I, I have a very different reading of 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 Louis C.K.'s pre, you know, pre Me Too persona, and even of Bill Cosby's. I mean, you know, I without without wanting to make a point of it, I think I'm a little younger than than maybe some of the others in this room, and so I wasn't so aware <laughs> so of Bill tactful. Cosby's. I, I wasn't so uh, you know in tune with Bill Cosby's previous standup. Um, uh, career, but certainly, you know, for me, he was very much depi- defined by the Cosby Show. For me, Louis C.K. was very much defined by the actually, you know, quite, um, you know, what was presented as a kind of where he was presenting himself as a, as a kind of feminist, as a kind of woke guy mm. um, in his uh, in his comedy series. And so actually, you know, what what I see happening there is that in both cases, the, the case of the sort of, um, you know, salt of the earth father, you know, father figure uh, or of the, you know, with it feminist you know, man feminist um, was really contradicted entirely by 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 the behavior, and I think that um, you know, for for Louis C.K. at least uh, in his you know in his comeback uh, you know shows that uh, the full scale of the bitterness that was and the misogyny that was hidden by the performance of feminism has really come to the fore. So I have a different reading of that work. Than it is, you know. What I'll agree with Randy is that when one went back to Louis C.K.'s series and looked, a lot of what he was presenting as a form of feminism or as a form of wokeness was actually pretty toxic. And and I think that often uh, what should be happening, and I think what Randy sort of acknowledges as part of the process, is for us to actually say, instead of saying, um, no, this work is great, and so we have to separate the art from the artist as a knee-jerk reaction, that we actually need to go back and say, okay, so let's assume this person has a certain attitude about the world. How might I see that in the work? And, you know, often it comes up and ideology works in this way, right? These As, as these really subtle cues that we often overlook, but work to 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 create attitudes about women about people of color about um children about uh men and masculinity that that often are just invisible to us so randy i just one more question about louis ck because he didn't really quite answer the question that i was asking you know he he had he admitted he admitted himself to unsavory uh harassing behavior in in front of women 
he apologized for it um, and uh, took a little time off, and now he's back out trying to rebuild his career. But my question to you is, knowing what you know now, and I want to get to whether it affects your perception of the work, yeah, if you, can, can, can you laugh at him as easily if you laughed at him in the past? Could you laugh at him as easily, or does it? Is there an overhang of some kind? Is there a cloud over all of it? Yes, um, as I said, even at the top, that that um, knowledge is a curse, and, and what you know about people, you know, it's better to be ignorant or, or dead. Um, uh, that that um, it cannot, but but help provide a kind of context and change the way you see the work. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's especially the case with um, work that's presented as, as at least semi-autobiographical, which is, is true of all the comedians we, we mentioned. So sure. So even if Louis C.K. were telling, you know, 1950s jokes that, that were a little distance from himself, um, because of that perform- performing tradition of stand-up, to be autobiographical, it, it would be harder and harder to distinguish the art from the artist. Yeah, and I, I want to point out in the case of Louis C.K., we're, we're, we're talking about people like um, Cosby and R. Kelly who have been convicted of crimes. That has not been the case with Louis C.K., but he did, he did admit to what uh, he was accused of. But but I I, I, I sympathize with uh, Arun about um, finding some of the uh, Woody Allen movies uh, a little a little creepy that um, that how anyone could have watched Manhattan it's a movie about Woody <laughs> Allen dating a high school kid um, and and not found that troubling. Um, but but I would say many people did at the time and, and, and knew that at the time and were right to know that at the time. Yeah, but a lot of people didn't. And that goes to the question of time that you brought up in the beginning. Um, in, in a certain way, you said uh, uh, pain fades with time. Time heals all wounds, essentially, is what you were saying in regard to I, Wagner. I like being but, reduced to a cliche. But <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was fresh new language. Um, <laughs> But there's another question of time. Are we judging people's behaviors in the past by the standards of today? Certain artists, for example, even Picasso, you, you sort of, you know, you made the case that uh, being the bad boy artist who was uh, uh, rough with women was is almost part of the mystique. But in mm-hmm. other ways, mores have changed, expectations have changed. And l- looking back to some of the categories of greats, and I know how you feel about that category, nevertheless, are they being judged unfairly for behavior from uh, of 100 years ago, 150 years ago, uh, when those standards were not in place in the way that they are now? You know, I keep going back to the what I said near the beginning, is that I'm I'm kind of less interested in judging the behavior of the artist. What I'm more interested in is what we tell what we're telling ourselves and what we're telling our other each other and what we're telling our kids about um how they are valued and how they are um positioned right so what does it tell our you know a young girl going to moma and seeing pictures on the walls that really express a kind of misogyny even if it's done in a formally creative way, um, you know, even if it's done with, you know, a brilliant eye to color, even if it's done with, you know, whatever, a, a kind of um, nascent abstraction, whatever the things we tell ourselves we value about certain kinds of work. You know, I, I'm certainly not saying that every uh, work of art that we see on the walls has to avoid making anyone feel bad. I mean, that's, you know, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that would it be so terrible if we stopped putting up work that was actively racist, that was actively misogynist, right? That was actively, you know, pedophiliac. I don't know what the proper word is. Like, for example, Baltus, um, whose work hangs in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, that who painted, you know, very sexualized sort of girls from, you know, around eight or ten years old. You know, why would it be such a terrible thing if MoMA made the decision or the Metropolitan made the decision that, okay, maybe we're going to take this down from the wall? And I just, you know, quickly want to add that one of the things, you know, when I go back and keep talking about this idea that there's a scarcity of genius. I just want to point out that for a museum, like the Museum of Modern Art in particular, and I'm only mentioning it, we've talked about MoMA a lot today, but, um, you know, I, I only single it out because it's an institution I know so well. MoMA has 
1,500 works on display at the museum. It has 200,000 works in its collection. And many of those works are great works. Many of those works, if they were at a museum anywhere but MoMA, would be considered the highlight of the collection. So there is no scarcity of genius um, and of greatness. Randy, can I respond to that? Yeah. And and Randy, if you can respond to it, but also work in the question that I wanted to bring to it, I'm wondering, is this a call for censorship or not? I I just wanted to point out that that Arun was advocating warehousing paintings whose offensive ideas were in the art itself, which would allow us to separate the art and the artist. She, she, you weren't discussing um, the bad behavior of these artists. You were saying these repugnant ideas were in the work, and that's Mm -hmm. my position. Well, then reject them. (laughs) Um, I'm for it. I believe I've won. Is there some kind of trophy here? (laughs) (laughs) All right. The two of you, I want to thank you so much for taking part in this conversation and talking this through. with one another civilly and and with open minds, even as you challenged one another. It's it's really uh, what we aim to do here at Intelligence Squared is to have conversations where those sorts of dynamics are demonstrated as dynamics that we can all participate in. So Aruna and Randy, I want to say to you, thanks so much for joining us at Intelligence Squared. Agree to disagree. It was so fun. Thank you. Thank you. And the conversation you just heard perfectly captures why we do this. You know that the way discourse is taking place across our culture these days is pretty broken. And it's why it's so unusual, but also so refreshing to hear two people who disagree actually be able to converse civilly and to shed light. And we know from so many of you that that's exactly why you are listening. And it's why I like to remind you that as you turn to us for that, we turn to you for support because we are a nonprofit and it's contributions from listeners like you that keep us going. So please consider sending us a buck or two or 10 or 50, whatever works. It'll give you more of a stake in what we're doing here each week. And it will mean that we are here this week, next week, and beyond. I'm John Donvan. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared, made possible by a generous grant from the Laura and Gary Lauder Venture Philanthropy Fund. As a nonprofit, our work to combat extreme polarization through civil and respectful debate is generously funded by listeners like you, the Rosencrantz Foundation, and friends of Intelligence Squared. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Clea Connor is CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Julia Melfi, Shea O'Mara, and Marlette Sandoval are our producers. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. We'll see you next time.